So, so today, I'm, I'm going to talk a, a bit about that very thing. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, one of our ushers will pass that out to you. Um, and and uh, we want you to have a copy of God's Word. So if you don't own a Bible, you take that one home with you. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Let me set it up a little bit before we get into the verses. Here's the thing about Hebrews. Um, uh, Hebrews is, a, from, from what I can see in my own life, um, maybe a pretty neglected book of the Bible. It's not, people don't spend a lot of time in Hebrews. I mean, it's kind of a, one that, that you touch and go and kind of cherry pick some verses from. But the way that the writer of Hebrews, and they don't know who wrote Hebrews. People take their guesses, but they don't know who wrote Hebrews. But they know some things about Hebrews based off the way that the letter is written. That you see that this, the, there's these incredible themes in Hebrews specifically around the gospel. Okay, and so I've heard it described that the gospel is like a, f- a beautiful jewel. Um, and if you've ever seen a jewel that's faceted, when you turn that jewel, the different lights and the different angles of the lights catch that gem and the facets and, and show the beauty of that gem in different ways as you turn the gem and see all of the facets. That's the gospel. Like if your understanding of the gospel is, I'm saved from hell, there is much more beauty than that, even though that's beautiful. And as you fixate on the gospel and you turn that, you see all these riches and beauties and truths about the gospel that you didn't know were there. And that's what Hebrews does. Hebrews does that very thing. And here's a couple things I want you to relate with the original hearers of this letter. Uh, The hearers of Hebrews, um, they were struggling mightily with fear. And not fear, that's some ambiguous fear that like maybe you felt before where you're like, man, I'm just kind of anxious. I don't really know why. It's not like I can pinpoint anything. I'm just, there's this gnawing in me of anxiety. It's not that. This fear they're dealing with is specific to some consistent adversaries that they're facing. Like it's fear from this thing pressing me, this thing pressing us. They were also struggling with despair. Uh, Despair, um, again, not a random despair. A despair because not just these adversities were coming against them, but these trials were hitting them in such a way where it was kind of one thing after the next. It's like the waves just kept crashing on them. Trial after trial after trial. That's where they were. Anybody relate with either one of those things? I do. (laughs) And they were struggling with those things. And the writer is going to use the beauties of the gospel to speak to the very struggles they were dealing with in their daily life. In other words, the gospel is not just some idea that gets us out of hell that we kind of put on the shelf and call as needed. It's the driving force of our lives. It's all we got. But in that all we haveness, that's not a word, but I'm gonna use it. In that all we haveness, it's all we need. All we need. So he's going to spur them on with riches and beauties of the gospel that sustain us for this life and for the life to come. It's the idea of living hope. We have this living hope. Because like right now, if you, can, if you confess to be a Christ follower, you can say with all the confidence that I have this inheritance waiting for me because God has redeemed me through his son and I am a child of God. But the living hope, I don't even think that's where the power is. 
Although there's incredible power there, living hope also means when you wake up in the morning and you're in that melancholy place, you know that's not where he's going to leave you. He secured something better for you and even in that place, he sustained you. So it's hope in the big macro level and it's hope in the specifics of daily life. One commentator raised a question. I read this in one of the study resources I had. He kind of raised several questions that the hearers of this letter might have asked. And here's one of the ones that he posed. He says, if God loves us so much, why is life so hard? Anybody ever ask that question? So did this audience. We see in Hebrews 1, that God is, is, that the writer is elevating Jesus to a place um, similar to what we see in Matthew 28 when he says, all authority has been given to you, talking about Christ, that's Hebrews 1. And then we see Hebrews 2 where we're gonna spend our time this morning where, where God's not this far off God th- thundering precepts at us, thundering platitudes at us, he's right in the mess with us. Right in the middle of it. And that's the picture we're going to see of Christ in Hebrews 2. All right. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. I'm just going to break these verses down and just kind of go verse by verse. For it was fitting, that phrase means consistent with God's character. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So, so he's, he's elevating God's character by saying, for it was fitting. Like, like some of us have a bit of a reputation, right? And, and it's not, maybe not a good reputation, so you kind of walk into a family reunion and everybody kind of rolls their eyes at that one guy because it's fitting that he would do that because he's the guy that always does that. On the positive side, what he's saying is that God's character can be trusted because he always proves himself to be true. So he's saying, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. I could do a whole sermon just on many sons to glory because what he does earlier in Hebrews chapter two, um, read Hebrews chapter two sometime later this week. He's referring back to something that he said earlier in Hebrews two. And in Hebrews two, earlier on in in verse five, you see he quotes a section of Psalms eight and it's verses four through six. Here's what he says that he's referring back to. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you made him a little lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet so real quick because if we got to understand in bringing many sons to glory what does that even mean here's what he's saying he's referring back to what he's already said earlier in hebrews and what psalm the picture of psalm 8 is painting it's a picture of the beauty of creation genesis 1 2 and creation so he's going back to get back all the way to genesis 1 and 2 and what genesis 1 and 2 is going to contend when god brings the created order and sets this beautiful rhythm and then creates mankind he does something profoundly different when he places mankind into the the created realm he says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, it's called Imago Dei. So he imprints himself, his glory, his radiance, his majesty onto mankind to be reflected in the whole of creation. Pretty sweet gig. We were image bearers and it's different from anything else he had created. So out of the overflow of his godness, out of the overflow of his majesty, he imprints that on us. And, and so that's the glory. The glory's not in me, it's from him and flowed right to me to be reflected out. And then on top of that, he gives dominion to mankind. Rule the earth. 
That's the sweetest job ever. So reflect your glory. Find my meaning, my dignity, my importance from that reality, and then rule the earth? So when he says, now let's go back. Go back to Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, saying, here's what Christ has done. He's restored us to the place it was intended to be. So since God brought all of this about through a man in Adam, all of it went out through a man in Adam because of Adam's sin. It had to be restored through a man, the greater Adam. You were created for glory. The problem is we seek meaning and glory from horizontal things. It doesn't work. It's a sad trade. And then on top of that, the, the very world that he created us to have dominion over, it has dominion over us. We're owned by this world. We are bound up by the realities of this world. And we were the ones that were supposed to be in charge. Because it came in through a man, it had to be redeemed through a man. The man is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and lived this life that we couldn't, died the death we deserved, and in so doing, ushered us right back into the glory of the Father. And all your meaning is found there. I mean, I'm pleading with you, because our culture would say this, find your meaning, find it somewhere. It's not anywhere. It's nowhere out there. It's not in another man, it's not in another woman, it's not in another job, you won't find it. And you'll, you'll, you'll live your life dying to try and then you'll die and you'll never will have found it. It's right here. He's returning us to where we were always intended to be. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we can reflect his glory and find our place in this creation. And I think we could stop right here. I mean, this, this, is, this is our hope. This is what we have, that he has created us for glory, his glory, to reflect that glory. And then, he, let's keep going though. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So that word founder, we're gonna unpack that in a bit. I'm gonna come back to that, but should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so here's, here's the beauty of suffering. He's not downplaying the, the realities of suffering. If anything, he's bringing meaning to suffering. When sin entered the world, so too it came a host of, of types of suffering. But they really kind of come into three categories. And if you've heard me preach, you've probably heard me say this in every sermon, that we're all suffering from the effects of the fall and that the demonic are alive and well and, and we suffer under those realities. We're suffering from the effects of our own boneheaded mistakes. It's called rebellion. And then there's consequences to those things. And then we're suffering from the effects of the sins of others. And this suffering that he walked through, that Christ walked through, he becomes the founder of the, our salvation and he's he's. He's made, he's made us perfect through suffering. So here's what he's saying. Here's the picture. Um, because sin entered the world in Genesis 3 and distorted and destroyed God's intended design, it had to be through a man and it had to be through suffering. So, so imagine if Jesus comes into the world and he just kind of lives this life where nothing ever presses against him and you come to the end of the story and he say, you need to put your faith and trust in me. And you're like, I don't, you kind of just coasted through life though, man. Nothing ever touched you. Nothing ever afflicted you. It's, 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 a, 
it feels a bit patronizing, right? But Jesus, because suffering came in because of sin, had to go through suffering so that the redemption could happen. Here's, here's a picture. The Super Bowl happens in a couple weeks, okay? Uh, that's football for all you hardcore hockey fans, okay? The Super Bowl happens in a couple weeks. And the, and the, the, the two best teams in the league are going to play. And they've, they've been preparing for over a year for this game. They, the, the, the weightlifting, the training, the, the games, the practices, and they've worked and they've worked and they've worked. They've fought through injuries and, and they've earned the right now to play for the championship. What if the NFL commissioner said, you know what, you guys had a great season, but we're not gonna let you play in the championship. These two teams are sexier, so we're gonna put them in. I don't even wanna watch that game. Like, you mean they didn't earn the right to be there? Christ going through suffering validates our redemption. It, it not only brings meaning to your suffering, it validates your redemption. Because if he just goes through life and doesn't, is, isn't afflicted in any way by the hardships that come as a reality of suffering, it doesn't really mean much. It came in through a man, had to be redeemed by a man. Suffering was the result, so it had to be redeemed through suffering. So he totally bridges the gap on every level in his life lived. And then verse 11, he says, for he who sanctifies, that word sanctifies, all it means is being set apart. God is holy, so being sanctified is to be made into his image, his likeness, to be restored, to be set apart into his holiness. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. There's there's a very big difference between Christ being sanctified and our sanctifying, okay? Very different. Christ is set apart for his obedience, okay? <laughs> we're set apart because we're sinful in need of redemption, okay? We can't be sanctified if Christ doesn't walk out obedience, okay? We can't be set apart. So let me talk to some church folk for a second. Here's what church folk think. Church folk think at times, when you forget the gospel, that yes, Jesus loves me, I need me some Jesus, I love me some Jesus, but surely I've gotta live my life in such a way where I can get the full acceptance from the Father. That's a lie from Satan. And so then church becomes about, the obediences of, of the Lord become about doing to get. I'll do and do and do to get favor, favor, favor. You already have the favor, okay? And here's the beauty of this truth. He's not talking about doing more to be set apart. This literally means it's assumed. Your righteousness is not in question. Your favor with the Lord, if you're in Christ, is not in question. It's certain. Which it frees me up then to approach this, to approach the body of Christ and all the things God calls us to, not as Acts of doing to get, but you've loved me and set me apart. How could I not do these things for and towards you, O oh God? It obliterates religion, in other words. That the gospel transforms us and sets us apart, which then sets our heart in a place where like, I want to follow you because you've loved me first. You've set me apart. How could I not? Changes worship a bit, doesn't it? I mean, it changes our whole outlook on God's view of us. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all will have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed 
to call them brothers. And that's our first big point. We talked about glory through suffering, but now um, the, 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 the three, I'm gonna talk about three distinct expressions of the gospel that Hebrews is now going to unpack for us. He says, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So that picture, it's, it's, it, it means what it says, okay? So here's the picture that Jesus, through his suffering, through his obedience and being set apart that brings us redemption, he now comes up next to you and he puts his arm around you and he walks into a party and he says, look at my brother, y'all. Look how awesome. He's our proud brother. That's what he's saying. Like he walks into the room and says, let me introduce you to someone. This is my brother. I don't know about you, but that would make me feel uncomfortable. Because I'm like, no, no, you're the one that needs the honor. You're the one. The party's for you. But he walks into the party and says, look at my brother. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. That if you've ever felt rejected, if you've ever felt alone, if you've ever felt unloved, you have this gospel that says, I'm proud of you. I love you. We could lose all the love in the world from people. And if we had that love, it's all we would ever need. It's all we would ever need. And yet the enemy would say more, 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 more. And we hunt for it and hunt for it and hunt for it. It's right here. Your proud brother says, I love you. I love you. Um, years ago, there was this young man that I counseled. Um, he was raised in the foster system. Um, I think 27 different homes um, before the age of 18. Uh, if you know anything about the foster system, there's good and there's not good. <laughs> and if you're at the mercy of the foster system, meaning you don't have any other options, relatives, then you're, 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 you're at the mercy of whether those people are good people or not. And so a lot of abuse, a lot of neglect. And then on top of that, the reality that he never knew his parents and the fact that he's in the mess that he's in is because they dumped him to begin with. So just lots of rejection. And I was walking with him through these verses. And he picked up on something I had never really considered. And as we were reading these, I read the verse. I said, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And I kept reading. He said, wait, wait, wait. So back up. So, so you're telling me that Jesus sees me like a brother and he's, like, he's real proud? I was like, yeah, it's what it says. And, and I, we talked about it a bit more. And, and then he said something that just struck me deeply. He said, all these years I've struggled with rejection. I've struggled with abandonment. I've struggled with hurts from, from being at the mercy of people that were supposed to take care of me but never feeling like really anybody ever loved me. And I always wanted a brother to share that with. So you're telling me that, that he's that? I said, yeah. That's a game changer for him. Like, Right then and there, that facet, that beauty of the gospel hit him in the depths of his soul where such woundedness was. And he realized, it's all I need. All this happened, yes, it's all I need. And you watch the wounds fall away when that happens. You watch them fall away. That's what happened. Why? Turned the gospel a bit, saw a different angle and was like, oh my gosh, that's for me? He's your proud brother. So brother, sister, like if, if, if you're in the place where you've dealt with rejection, felt misunderstood, felt unloved, 
I, 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 I'm sorry for that. I hate that for you. But I will tell you, if you never get that this side of heaven from people, you have it right now in Jesus Christ. He's proud of you. Great acceptance. And then the writer does something that's difficult, okay? It may not be difficult for you, but I had to study this part like exhaustively because it's a little bit confusing. He, he says this. He says, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, now he's going to quote. He's going to quote Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Here's what he's doing. He's speaking for Jesus. So we, we tend to look at our Bibles and look for the red letters. Oh, Jesus said that. He's saying, the writer, is that Jesus said this, okay? Um, so these are the words of Christ. He's saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Here's the great acceptance that you're about to see. Psalm 22, in my opinion, is the bloodiest psalm in all of the Bible. If you read it later this week, you'll immediately know why. Because Psalm 22 are the words that Jesus says on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he quote that during the darkest hour of his life to talk about our acceptance. Here's why. When you read Psalm 22, when it gets to verse 22, it's lament, 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 all the way through the psalm. And then 22, it turns to a song, psalm of great worship and joy. What Jesus is saying there is that my death, the darkest hour of my life, was worth it. It was worth it because of you. If you don't think you're loved, it's garbage. He loves you. He's unbelievably proud of you. He's using the darkest period of his life to articulate that it's no lament. If you've ever been given a pity gift, you know what I'm talking about. Somebody who gives you a pity gift and they're kind of like, here, here you go. And it's like, well, gosh, I don't, I don't, I'm not feeling the love, bro. There's none of that. It's I did this because I love the Father. I'm submitting to his will. I love you. It was hard, but it was absolutely worth it. No begrudgingness. Like if you watched an exchange of a marriage and a guy was just kind of going through the motions, but he's rolling his eyes all along the way, but doing the right thing for his wife, like it's, it, it doesn't look like they have a good marriage even though he's doing the right things. But if you watch that guy just gladly serving his wife because the joy of the Lord's in him and he's willing to just serve and serve and serve or she's willing to serve and serve and serve him, you see that with great delight. That's the delight here. There's great delight. And then verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So he's, he's doing the same thing, but to articulate uh, a different truth. Now he's quoting Isaiah 8. And, and if you get time this week, read Isaiah chapter 6, 7, and 8, because it'll give kind of a full context of maybe why God's using this to draw into his word here. The, 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 the picture that's going on in Isaiah 8 is around um, like the, the Syrians and, and the Israel, like the, some of the people in Israel, they were going against Judah and they were coming against Ahaz and Uzziah, okay? And if, you, and if you read the stories, you'll remember the stories. And, and there's great fear, there's great anxiety at the face of these threats, okay? So they're scheming against Uzziah, okay? And, and they're coming against him. They're planning to attack Judah, and they're freaking out. They're scared. 
Anxiety is full in the room. And then God uses Isaiah to say these words, I will put my trust in him. In other words, Isaiah, in their peril, calls them to fear the Lord more than their circumstances. Fear God more than their circumstances so that their hearts can be buoyed and grounded the way they need to be in the face of this threat. So what is Jesus saying by using Isaiah 8 to make a point here? What he's saying is, in my darkest hour, I had to trust the will of the Father. But remember the garden. What did he say in the garden? Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will. Here's the beautiful gospel truth here. Jesus is saying, I had to trust the will of the Father. And it was scary. I was alone, but I subjected myself all the way under it. I'm not calling you to do something I didn't have to do. It feels empty when people give a platitude and there's nothing behind it. This is not that. Jesus is saying, I've gone where I'm calling you to go. All you have to do is follow me. Here's what religion says. Religion says, Jesus has saved me. I love me some Jesus. Now it's on me to get, keep, my, keep my life right. I gotta I got got blaze the trail now. Jesus blazed the trail, okay? He, he did it. He blazed the trail. He trusted perfectly. He submitted perfectly. So anything he calls us to do isn't to get out in front of him. It's to get behind what he's already done. If you have watched racing, the, I, the picture of drafting, there's a lead car and all, all the drag that's coming, they're, they're driving and people get behind them. Other racers get behind them to, to, to drift. Okay? And, and in so doing, they, 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 all of that adversity that's hitting the lead car, they don't hit it because they're right behind them. It's called drafting. Okay? So he's calling these people, he's calling us to get behind what he's already done. And this is subtle, this is very subtle, but here's what Satan does. Satan will come after our, the cracks in our faith. And and, and we'll, we'll, we'll worship Christ, we love Christ, we believe he died for us and we give our lives and our heart and our all to him. But there's this little lie, there's this little belief in the back of our mind that says, surely there's something I can do to make him love me a bit more. Surely there's something I can do, like he calls me to trust, so I better figure this out. Kai talked about it earlier. Like we'll, we'll come to church thinking like, well, I better kind of dust myself off so I look the certain part like, and, and then unbeknownst to us, we're actually leaning on our own understanding rather than resting in the accomplished work of the gospel that's already cleaned us up. It's already cleaned you. A dear friend of mine, he says it this way, God doesn't love a future version of you. He loves you now. It's not a future version. He loves you as much as he possibly can right now. And again, that changes all of our motivations. I now want to trust him because tr Christ has trusted first. So I'm going to get behind the work Christ has done. But nothing I do or don't do makes him love me any less. It actually frees me up to rest in the beauties of his grace. He has blazed the trail for us. We simply come behind the work that Christ has already done. And then he keeps going. Verse 14. So we see that God, um, that Jesus is our, our, um, our proud brother. Now we're gonna see the second expression. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, 
that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Bible reading 101. If you ever read a section of scripture that has the same word repeated, it's on purpose. So what the writer is doing here is he's using this emphasis of death to create this impossible scenario of a battle that you're never going to win. So imagine World War II times 100. Like the enemy's too great, there's too many of them, they've totally surrounded us, they have better guns than we have, like we're not gonna win this battle. That's, that's the imagery he's using. Death, 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 death. He's saying the death that we were facing, the enemy we were facing is unbelievably powerful. And yet, go back to founder, verse 10. Returning many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation. The reason founder is understood with this picture of death and death and death is it's founder is, it, the word means forerunner, okay? Forerunner isn't very helpful for us though. In fact, I, I even think that forerunner or founder could, could better be interpreted here um, as, as, as champion or captain, so here's the, here's the image I have. And so forgive me if you've never seen the movie, but you should watch the movie. It's pretty sweet. Braveheart. Amen. Do you hear that? There's this scene in Braveheart where this terrible battle's going on. And the Scots, they're not going to win this battle. The English are too strong. And you see the, the king of England watching the battle from a far off hill, watching his guys go to war. And then you watch the Scots like William Wallace is right in the middle of it with him. That's champion. <laughs> that he's our champion. Like he literally comes into the face of death and he's swinging his sword. But here's the difference. He didn't conquer death by killing. He conquered death by giving his life. So let's think of the gospel thread here. The gospel thread is this. If you've ever faced some type of bondage or addiction or life debilitating sin that, that you thought was impossible to defeat, it is. It's impossible for you and I to defeat. It's impossible for us to break the bondage of sin, especially the types of sin that ensnare us to the point where we're taken by it, where we're given over to it, and yet Jesus stands right in the middle of that reality, and he has swung a sword and slayed death. He has slayed death. So when I'm counseling an addict, I take him right here. Because they're addicted in the moment we're talking. And I'm saying right now, if you're in Christ, he has destroyed what seems to entangle you right now. That's power for them in the moment to begin to walk out of that addiction. Because it's not something they have to do or not do or stop doing. Christ has already conquered it. They just need to come behind the work he's already done and let him bring the freedom needed to be rid of that bondage. It's a game changer. So what, what hang up do you have? And, and this is church. We can't be honest here, guys, so please don't be honest. Please don't ever confess that thing you're thinking of right now. I'm being sarcastic right now. This should be the place that that thing is coming out early and often. Not because I can fix it or they can fix it or you can fix it or whatever, but because we all need Christ together. And as we share these things together and bring them into the light, we're proclaiming that he's our champion and has already defeated it. It's over. Yeah, this thing nags at me now. It presses against me sometimes, but it's been destroyed by our champion, our great champion who's defeated death. So if you just read these words, death, 
power of death, fear of death. It sucks all the air out of the room. But when you insert the founder, the forerunner, our champion into that, he's swinging a sword in each and every one of them and we don't have to do a thing. (laughs) He has defeated death, our champion. And then it gets into the next one. So let me keep reading. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that's the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That phrase offspring of Abraham, that means those who... He's using that to describe sons and daughters, okay? Those who place their trust in Christ. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. So that word propitiation, it's, it's like a, it seems like a, a word we wouldn't use, but the picture of propitiation is all sins, past, present, and sins we haven't even committed. So this propitiation, it's a combination of forgiving sins, all of them, past, present, future, and satisfying the wrath of God towards every one of those. So he has made propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this this is the third expression of the gospel that we see here. So we've seen Jesus, our proud brother, Jesus, our champion, and now here we see Jesus, our high priest. Um... Like, I didn't know Kai was gonna do what he did in the prayer time, in the nine, and he talked, he, he had everybody do what he had you do. He had everybody envision the, 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 the veil that's been torn. Here's what the priest did, and you probably know this if you've been in church, but if you haven't, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was separated by this massive tapestry, this massive curtain, and the curtain was really thick. Um, It was super heavy, um, and it separated from floor to ceiling um, from the Holy of Holies, which is where the the presence of God dwelt from the rest of the worship center, in essence, the the, the synagogue, okay? And, And no one, not just anyone, could stumble into the Holy of Holies. In fact, there's stories in the Old Testament of people walking through there and dropping dead. It's no joke. And so the priest's job was to get himself clean, to make sacrifice for himself so that he could then take sacrifice into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people. Some of the priests didn't come out alive. He went behind the veil to make sacrifice. Here's the difference with our high priest, Jesus. Jesus went into the Holy of Holies and the sacrifice was himself. He wasn't walking out the same. He wasn't. The sacrifice was him. And it says in the Gospels that a great earthquake came when Jesus died on the cross. And when the earthquake happened, the veil was torn from top to bottom. Here's the picture now. There's no third party. When I'm struggling with sin, when I'm struggling with pain, when I'm struggling with all the things that press against me in this messed up world, I bring him straight to the Father. There's no third person. I can bring him straight to him. This is no small thing. Like he receives us in to bring those burdens, to bring those struggles, to bring those hurts, to bring it all to him. And then I think 
personally, my favorite part is Jesus as our high priest is how he finishes it. He says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the, 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 it, Corinthians describes this as God, the God of all comfort brings us comfort when we're afflicted. And then what's cool about the body of Christ is having received comfort from the God of all comfort, we get to be agents of grace and give comfort to others who are hurting. So we get to be the hands and feet of Christ. This is that idea. But, but it's different. He's, he's taking it a bit further here in this letter of Hebrews. Um, Jesus is saying that because I suffered, because I walked through all the things, all the trials, all the temptations, all the abandonment, all the, all the ridicule, all the abuse, because I walked through that. Like, I literally relate with you. Like, I, I understand your loneliness because I was alone. All my friends rejected me. And then my father turned his back on me. Man, I understand your loneliness. I stopped saying to people when I read this, I totally understand you. I stopped saying that after I read this. I'm like, I don't. But he does. Our great high priest that's granted us access before our heavenly father also comes next to you in your greatest agonies, your greatest defeats, your greatest fears. And he says, man, I, I know. When I was diagnosed with Crohn's when I was 14, um, that summer I stayed in the hospital pretty much the whole summer and there was, these, there was this celebrity golf tournament in town. And um, all of these um, actors and, and athletes that were playing in the tournament came up to the children's hospital. Um, and, and they were going to the rooms to encourage the kids. And so these giant men walked into my room. They were like Hall of Fame football players. I mean, the smallest guy was still gigantic. It's unbelievable how big these guys are. And they had their Super Bowl rings, and they were giving autographs. And these guys were, they were older, so they were gentle. Um, and so they were just encouraging me. And I, I just felt like, oh, this is awesome. I can't believe this. They were, they were telling me stories about their playing days and asking questions about me. And just, they were encouraging me. And I felt encouraged. But I, I can remember thinking this. When they left, my stomach sunk a bit because although I admired them, I was in the weakest place I've ever been in my life. And I thought, like, man, I'm never going to be like those guys. And I felt really alone. Like, it's probably one of the most dejected places I've ever been. And I don't know, <laughs> I don't know who it was, but later that day, I have no idea who this man's name was. This man, I guess, was doing the same thing. He was making rounds. An anonymous guy. Um... He came into my room, and he just sat on my bed, and he just says, hey, I've, you know, I come up here to the hospital sometimes to try to encourage. Like, I've gone through cancer, and I, I think he actually still had cancer, and, and I just want to encourage people who are struggling. I want to encourage kids who are sick. And he just began to tell me a story. <laughs> I, I remember feeling understood. I remember thinking, like, okay, like, he, he, he understands what's screaming inside me right now. He, this guy understands like how alone I feel right now because my life's just changed. He, he gets it. That's a shadow at best of what Jesus is saying here about himself. <laughs> like Jesus, like, I mean, I, I understand. <laughs> I, I went through it. What the, what the enemy wants in that moment is for us to feel so alone and isolated that we drift into this place of anonymity and we wither and die. And Jesus is coming right up next to us and saying, no, 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 don't do it. I understand that. Let me bring you right into the marvelous light. Come on, 
It's scary, you know? It's scary. Oh, it hurts, doesn't it? Come on. And it's, it's unbelievably rich with sympathy. It's unbelievably rich with empathy. So here's what I would say again. There is no human relationship that can bring the amount of empathy that Christ does right here. I want people to be a reflection of this empathy in your life, but if everyone fails, you still have him. Praise the Lord. So this picture, and and, and C.S. Lewis says it this way. I just want to read this quote because he said it better um, than I think anyone could say it. He said, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And then what he goes on to say, it's in mere Christianity, he goes on to talk about just in that being brought into favor with the Lord, we find our purpose, we find our meaning, we find our value, but not from some horizontal thing, from the vertical truths of God, how he intended it always to be, and we're brought into that place through Christ's faithfulness. So Jesus, he's incredibly relatable to these deep hurts these deep isolations, these deep fears that we deal with, and he's conquered them as our champion. He's proud of you with great acceptance as your brother. And he sympathizes in so many ways, always, to the point where he's brought you before the Father so that you can be with your Father, and then he relates with you perfectly. So we're gonna close in prayer, and I I want every head to bow and every eye to close because I want to walk us through a couple things. I think we're I think we're in danger where we minimize the gospel to a get out of hell card. We set our hearts up in a way that leads to all kinds of misunderstandings. And then maybe a false gospel comes in. Maybe we become despairing because we feel so debilitated by a certain sin, we lose hope that it can ever change. And we begin to believe a lie. And yet we have here from God's word that Jesus didn't just save us from hell. He brings us into great favor. He's super proud of us. He's our brother. He conquered sin and death. He slayed it like a champion. He became our great priest who entered into the most dangerous place in the world and absorbed the wrath of God and then comes to us and says, man, I understand. He whispers in our ears, I can relate. Trust me. I had to trust the Father. Get behind me and follow me. So here's what I want you to consider right now in your own heart. This is you. This is you. Jesus as your brother. We are wildly accepted and celebrated. Right now, ask yourself the question. Ask the Lord, where is shame or regret or or, or feeling abandoned held you back from embracing this good gospel that we just read about? Because even if all those things are true and you've been rejected by every person in the world, which that hasn't happened, but if it has, you still have the acceptance and the honor that Christ brings to you, the greatest one. There is no rejection or hurt on earth that this acceptance from Jesus cannot overcome. Receive it. It's there for you. Like he loves you right now. 
not a future version. He loves you right now. Think of Jesus as our great champion. There's great power and deliverance. But if you've ever had a life-dominating sin, you've probably become hopeless that you would never change, that you would never get past that struggle. Well, Jesus has fought and won the war against sin and death, even the things that may enslave you now. Believing that, resting in that, walking in obedience behind that truth loosens the grip of that sin that's already been defeated. There is no stronghold that our great champion has not and cannot overcome. And here's what I would say right in your own heart. If you've been in a place and you are in a place where you've given in to the fact that this sin is just owning you and you've even become maybe faithless that God would even change it, you need to like, you need to repent because Jesus has said himself like, I conquered every one of them, every one of them. The little ones that you can easily justify, the ones that could seemingly own your life, I've destroyed them all. Rest in it, accept it. And think of Jesus as priest. Pastor Kai told us to consider like, just imagining that torn curtain, that torn veil. Just kind of picture it right now. Like it's torn and then like pushed to one side of the room and the other side of the room and there's a good opening now. There's a big opening and you're looking through the opening. Look through the opening right now. And at the other end of that opening, there's this loving father waiting. You've chosen not to walk towards him. Right now, take that step of faith to your loving father. Do it. There's no reason not to. It's your pride, it's the lies of the enemy that would keep you back. Go, walk through that opening. And then right now in your own heart, praise his name that the veil's been torn. That there is no third party. Thank him, praise him. There is no suffering or sorrow this side of heaven that Jesus our priest is not intimately familiar with. If you feel lost, if you feel alone, if you feel overwhelmed, he right now whispers in your ear, I understand, let's go to God the Father together. Do it, run to him. Jesus, we praise you. This is great hope. Right now, this is great hope. This is hope that our souls cannot fathom and yet you freely give it to us. This is hope that right now people who might be enslaved because of the power behind this hope, that enslavement can fall away forever right now this day. Where people who are lost or wounded because of rejection can be wiped away because of the radical acceptance that comes through our great brother. And just the confidence we have because we can approach your, your throne because the veil's been torn. How could we not worship you with our whole hearts? How could we not give up everything for you because you've given so much to us? So we lay it all down. We lay it all down, the blessings from you, the sin struggles we have, the questions and the fears and the anxieties we have, we lay it all down at your feet because Jesus, you're better. We ask these things in your name. Amen.